I just want the ability for individuals to be in a lot more control of their own destiny, their own careers, and where they think about income generation as a portfolio. I think that makes a more sustainable economy when individuals that can vote people into power, that can do make all the choices with their wallet, also have the choice about the type of work, the type of relationship that they want with a company. How do companies get ready for that world? Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners. Today, we will talk with Balaji Bondili, head of Deloitte Pixel, a consulting firm that helps clients tap into the power of external crowds to deliver improved outcomes. We will talk about his ideas for the future of crowdsourcing, his views on the open talent economy, and his ideas for how to help companies be more open to using independent professionals and gig workers to meet business needs. Balji, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the State of Independence podcast. You know, you are somebody who has an extremely interesting and unique history in the future of work space. And I know it's one that our audience would really love to hear about. And this is an opportunity for us to spend some time together talking about your journey and also reflecting on the fact that we are at the 10th year of really, from MBO's perspective, studying independent work in America and the gig economy and kind of comparing notes on what we think has happened within that 10 years. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, a great place for us to begin, and this is something that I do with each of the guests that we speak with, is to say at this 10-year point for SOI, we kind of look at our uh, our guests and our experts as people who have had their own kind of really interesting decade that's brought them to the point that they are in their career. And for you, of course, that is leading up a very interesting initiative at a major consulting firm, and we'll talk more about that. Where were you in your career 10 years ago, and how did that bring you to the role that you have today? It's a fascinating question and something that I reflect all the time when I've had really tough days to say, why did I make this choice to do this when I was on a nice, cushy consulting job, traveling the world, you know, setting up venture capital businesses and innovation businesses for our large, you know, large clients. 2011, that's exactly what I was doing. I was spending, you know, 80% of my time flying around, living in different cities, making friends all over the world, not having any real social life because the first question everybody asks you if you're a consultant is, uh, when are you leaving? because they don't expect you to stay for long enough to be a part of their lives. Having done that for a long time, one of my last things that I was doing around the 2011 was I was also helping one of our clients set up a corporate venture capital business so that they can invest in digital health startups. So I started notice, I started talking to a lot of startup startups out there that were doing really cool things, solving problems very differently than the usual. And again, I was a part of Deloitte at that time, and I started asking the questions, what do I want consulting to become in the future? What do I want my journey to be in the future? The other realization as a consultant is that, you know, if my hard disk crashes, I don't have anything else to show. And I'm not building anything tactile that I can, you know, hold in my hand and say, I want to do this. I mean, this is what I built and this thing lasts and this is my craft that I can show people that they can touch and feel as well. 
So I wanted to go the complete other extreme, which is a trend in my life. When I want to change, I go the complete other extreme. So I wanted to, I wanted to quit and become a full-time carpenter because I, I was missing the complete tactile touch. And I'm like, I took a couple of months off work and then I actually apprenticed as a carpenter with, um, with a carpenter and I learned the craft. You know, I was thinking about what next to do in the firm and I presented to the firm that I think I need a different type of experience beyond, you know, moving from project to project to project versus having building my own. I want to build a, my own business and I want to do that and I'm thinking about leaving. And the firm was awesome in that they said, why don't you build businesses with us? We're thinking about what should Deloitte evolve to next. We're thinking about product businesses, asset businesses, all kinds of new businesses. Why don't you do that with us? I'm like, that's not a bad idea to get a biweekly paycheck and still do what I want to do. So, and then at that point in time was when I started thinking about what is happening around the world. And I reflected back on one of my key formative experiences about a few years before 2011, was there was a huge tsunami in uh, in the Southeast Asia. And a lot of my friends actually packed bags, went to the south of India then, and then started doing work, hands-on work. And I'm like, I'm a consultant. I could do more beyond lifting and moving things and being there in person. I wanted to participate in a more intellectual way. So I found uh, like four people that started a blog called tsunamihelp.blogspot.com. I was a blogger at that time. And then we just started becoming a clearinghouse for people would send us information about, you know, these people have some supplies, these people have water, somebody's missing this person. And we became a clearinghouse of everything. And in about 10 days, we have a thousand people around the world that were participating in here. The rare honor that we were actually on google.com's front page as a place to go for resources for that tsunami. Wow. And this was, everybody was coming and searching on Google, but they didn't know where to go. They had thousands of places. They actually put us on the front page. We were covered in New York Times. And, and I actually forgot that experience when I went into my consulting career and started. And I reflected on that, what kind of business do I want to start? Like there's this power in people from around the world coming together and solving a problem. I want to take on crowdsourcing and bring that to consulting as a way to solve client problems, harnessing the passion and energy and power of people around the world. And that's how I came into crowdsourcing in Pixel. That is an incredible story. It gave me chills. And I do believe that there are different ways that each of us can contribute. And I think you pointed out that you also went through kind of what I think of as a more self-actualized way of reflecting on what could you uniquely do, right? You weren't in a position to maybe get on a plane and be on the ground, but you were in a position to perhaps have a whole different kind of impact with this team and with this global community that you built around the tsunami. And I do see it as a wonderful connection to the work that you're doing around crowdsourcing. Before we go dive into that, but it's absolutely what I think the topic of conversation should be for the podcast. I'm just super curious as to what did you build as a carpenter? Like what was that first product or was it a piece of furniture? Was it something handheld? Oh, one of my perspectives was that could I make this into a commercial, into something that can sustain my lifestyle, which is not cheap. So um, there's a lot of beautiful table makers that I saw in New England when I was traveling through that. Like, I want to make tables like Nakamichi or Thomas Moser of types of tables which are highly craftsmanly that, that, that fetch thousands of dollars, 
I'm like, I could make two of them for a month and then then live. So that's where I went first. I wanted to start making tables, that's- which is also probably a little more easy. A chair is a, is like a machine, is a construction. Yeah. Tables are a little easier to start. Well, there's going to be a table and chair analogy in our conversation because I know a lot of what describes your career is also that optimization and that lean startup piece of you know where you start and where you end up. You know, we start with a table and end with a chair. But you talk about your experiences at that moment that you decided to leave Deloitte and to you know go out, and then really they turned around and said, "Be an entrepreneur." Right. And then the next stage that you describe so nicely is sort of what, right? What between all these potential opportunities for things you could do as an entrepreneur, which is the one that really sang? And you brought up the concept of crowdsourcing. And, you know, for, for our audience, looking at independent work contribution, there's also a journey as to what fits and what qualifies. If you look at a, a high end independent consultant, our core customer, perhaps over the course of the 10 years that MBO has been studying independent work, they have a certain lens around, you know, what constitutes consulting contribution. And perhaps it was pretty traditional, you know, pretty much in a certain kind of box. And as you said, you produced a certain kind of output. And what you've looked at for a very large and traditional firm is something that isn't quite inside that box, but is extremely powerful. And you talk about it as part of a concept of the open economy. So I'd love for you to share that story of, of how did you create this space? And then what did you do with it to really start to reflect on crowdsourcing and open innovation and start to unlock that opportunity for your firm and beyond for your clients? It was a fascinating topic. The thing that we talk less about is what's happening with the person. We talk more about what's happening with the idea, what's happening with the market, what's happening with the company. Given the story that I told you about my consulting experience of bouncing around the world constantly without too many deep social ties, one thing that I also wanted to create was a business that is location agnostic. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to create a business that I need to be in front of a client selling in front of a client delivering a team that has to do that because I just didn't think that that was sustainable for many people. It was sustainable for a lot of younger people like me when I started in consulting, but it stopped being sustainable for people when you have kids. So when I thought about the range of choices that were in front of me, which was the one that was least dependent on one person sitting in front and getting the work done, competitive crowdsourcing was the other extreme, as I said, extreme to the theme, where you don't even know who the person is that is solving the problem for you. And also that was important to me because if I'm like, if I can take the firm there, I can move them back into freelancing a lot easier because they've agreed on actually working with a nameless, faceless person that, that they will probably never meet. They won't know who it is except for the fact that they got a prize money. They don't control that person. And if they see value from that, they can move closer to an identified named freelancer or an independent worker or an independent consultant a lot more easily. So from a culture change perspective, I took them all the way to the edge and brought them closer to the core. Interesting. So our CEO, Miles, who I think you know and have have had conversations with, one of the things that is a core, and Miles talks about it on his episode of the State of Independence podcast, is this idea of focusing on the outcome rather than you know the person delivering the work. And the person delivering the work is sort of a function of what is the outcome or the way that the outcome is delivered. You start to become, as you talked about the concept of agnostic, start to become agnostic to the way that that happens. And, and you've said something very powerful, which to me has to do with trust 
and risk removal in new ways of working. This is a theme that we've touched on multiple times in the podcast. The reduction of risk creates the opportunity to go try something. And when you reduce the risk and try it and you get excited about the outcome, that's when you can go do some really, really innovative things. So tell us a story, like tell us, okay, that's conceptual what you just shared, but is there a real example that could be interesting or appropriate for you to share? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that, I'm, that we're very, very proud of is we did a project, and again, this is not a client-facing project, so I can actually talk about it. We were thinking about, you know, disability as a as a space in in the U.S., and we were thinking about why do we not see more products and businesses supporting disabled individuals? When if you have multiple sources give you the numbers that 5% of US population has some type of disability, but you don't see 5% of the entire economy to serve disabled individuals. Why is that? Mm -hmm. So we, we took, again, took an extreme problem to say, how do we think about creating a solution for a paraplegic? We also wanted to then understand what are their daily needs that they miss the most? What are their emotional needs that they miss the most? And we actually conducted on Mindsumo a very deep survey. We asked people who have disabilities or who are caring for disabled people, what is the biggest need that you want to solve for them? Second, come up with a solution to solve it fascinating to hear that majority of them said the need to solve it is not to solve the disability itself, but it's to solve the independence that comes from that disability and also the self-respect that comes with being disabled, that the shame that people feel that I need somebody's help to take, take a shower. If you give them that independence to, to do the basic tasks in life, their confidence in taking a job is much higher than somebody else is taking care of their fundamental needs and now they're expected to be a um, you know, fully functional, economically independent human. So we said, how do we solve that problem, right? So the way, and this is what we typically do for our clients is we did one survey on MindSumo, we found some solutions, took a kernel of that solution and we went to another marketplace called MeshOne, which does industrial design. And we said now, it feels like the morning routine of taking a bath and putting your clothes on is the most biggest driver of independence. But there's no solution that helps somebody with limited mobility of arms or legs to take a shower and to put on clothes. Simple problems for most of us, but hugely insurmountable problems for many others. So we then did a survey on Meshwan and identified, we actually took people from MindSumo to say, would you participate with an industrial designer to come up with a solution together? So we paired an industrial designer with somebody with needs, and now you say, now all of you compete to come up with a solution. And Meshwan came up with such awesome ideas, and we, we, we prioritized or we picked five of them, and you know the, the process of how fast they came up with it, the depth of the solution was just awesome. And, you know, just as a, from connecting it to freelancing, I didn't have the capacity to run through all of these steps. So we found a freelancer on Catalan who spearheaded this entire process. So I could be a user and now everything was done outside the firm. And I think that's the magic of crowdsourcing and freelancing coming together. You cannot crowdsource all problems. You cannot freelance all problems, but a way to combine Deloitte staff, competitive crowdsourcing, individual freelancers into a cohesive solution, I think generates optionality, creativity from the crowds, dependability and consistency of Deloitte, and 
the scalability and quality of a freelancer. Putting that together is the match, is what Pixel's vision is, was, and continues to be. That's an incredible story. And I'll tell you where it takes me. I spent 10 years in the consumer packaged goods industry. And actually, that's the place I left to launch my first startup in the future of workspace. But speaking to those 10 years at, at PepsiCo at various divisions, um, I spent a lot of time inside brand management and uh, specifically worked on R&D and innovation. There were so many opportunities to tweak and do better, you know, with the traditional R&D process to get, because it was expensive, it relied on very specific mechanisms to generate the insights and then the product ideas and then the, you know, the packaging and solution that was ultimately taken to market. This is another model. Like this is not, this is doing the exact same thing. It's just putting it together in a whole new way, leveraging sort of fractionality, agility, open sources, and then still creating um, some vetting, right? In an environment of trust, because I take it that within this unit that you've created, you are looking at providers and, and it's not a free-for-all. You know, you're, for example, MindSumo is a vetted partner. You know, there may be another vetted partner that is used for a different piece of solving the puzzle. So I could see tremendous application towards even a traditional kind of making a packet of chips or or inventing the next beverage could be driven by the same process and we could have similar breakthroughs that could be very transformational. So I really appreciate you breaking it down to an example because I think for our audience, both those that are curious about business model change, our enterprises, those that are talent, meaning they're somewhere in this ecosystem, they're independent talent, um, they either own a firm or participate in another firm's ecosystem. And then, of course, our MindSumo community will see themselves in this future of work, right? And they'll see how they yeah. fit. And I think, you know, and that was interesting. So as an evolution of Pixel, we, we now have two businesses within Pixel. One is all focused on future of work, freelancing, crowdsourcing, marketplaces, all of that good stuff that I work with MBO a lot, or at least I have a team that is dedicated to working with MBO a lot. And then there's another part of it, which is what we call future of insights. So we use MindSumo as much to get work done, but I think the shifting the incentives from market research on a area to a competitive model like what we did with this disability case is we're getting market insight and market research, but we're flipping the incentive to making it competitive to, to make people think differently about how to answer a question. Mm -hmm. So we used a ton of MindSumo actually as a consumer insight perspective to make the next bag better bag of mm -hmm. chips. Not necessarily to always make a better product, right. but how do you harness the incentive mechanism of crowdsourcing to create better research? Yeah. And now we scale that pretty significantly. We have another 20 companies that we work with. One of the things that to me is, is most interesting as a sort of a, a global opportunity and what you've described is the number of unprecedented challenges that we are facing both as a society, as a sort of a business economy, and really as a globe, right? Like everything from the efforts of climate change and you kind of alluded to those, speaking about the tsunami, you know, that's certainly was something that's related to an early indicator of climate change, to the massive business disruption that has occurred where an entire industry 
might, for example, be threatened or, you know, fall to its knees overnight because of these twin impacts of the COVID pandemic and then just kind of political disruption and social disruption. So what do you see the role of crowdsourcing in solving society's problems at scale? And do you see an opportunity for the sector and the related workers, you know, the gig workers, the innovators, especially the young, because many of these are younger workers that have moved into this field to help transform our society towards a better future? I mean, what can we do to tap it? It's a great question. And I, I think about it in two ways, right? One is I think about the world of ideas and perspectives and contribution that impacts a certain part of a person's behavior and motivations. Whereas the more longitudinal aspect of getting money, putting food on the table, supporting families, I think crowdsourcing has a greater impact on coming up with better ideas to make the world better. Mm -hmm. I think of freelancing on executing those ideas and actually putting money on millions or billions of people's table. I don't think I can, anybody can say, Ideas can put, you can keep generating ideas and keep competing on crowdsourcing marketplaces to, uh, to pay a billion people. Those many idea competitions, those many are just not happening. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about which motivations are you addressing with each of these two modalities. And I think crowdsourcing is a great approach to skill yourself, to understand, am I the best at what I'm doing? Am I competing with the best of who they are? But I think that their longitudinal income generation potential comes from freelancing, from being an independent contractor. So crowdsourcing then becomes like the entry doors really you're describing to a new way of working for whether it's a traditional worker or somebody who's entering the workforce for the first time as a young contributor competing, right? It's a very, very competitive world. Uh, yeah. I think that's an excellent lens, and I know it's one that we've talked about frequently inside MBO, given that we play in both of these spaces. And then we also have been exploring and, and really examining the intersect between these two worlds and how to make that transition from Absolutely. being a member of a crowdsourcing marketplace to truly putting food on the table as a successful solopreneur. It's a wonderful challenge. Like if we could help people do that better, that would unlock not, not only great execution potential in our workforce, which is really important for businesses, but also great income opportunity for individuals who I think many of whom are really struggling to understand their place in our future of work, right? Because we have challenges like automation and AI. We have, as I said, the rate of change and business disruption, which means you don't know what you're quite ready for next. And you're trying to explore and figure out, you know, is it this industry? Is it that industry? How should I contribute? Interesting, Frida Poli and I had an amazing discussion. She talked about this concept of how do you fit the right person to the right role if you don't have a work history to look at, right? It's a fascinating question because you then have to fit them based on potential or soft skills and then make an assumption that with the right ones, they're going to contribute and become somebody who can execute, you know, within an industrial context. What do you think about that? And what is your perspective on her, her concept or her idea? I think that what, what drives me significantly to both crowdsourcing and freelancing as concepts is, uh, is the agency. The agency of an individual to make choices for what he or she wants to do 
invest himself or herself to get to where they want to go to versus the world that we've lived in even today majority of the world is the company chooses for you as to what you do the company chooses to upskill you or not upskill you right and when the company doesn't feel like you have enough job the company lays you off and then you're on your own mm-hmm. right and i think as the world evolves and you know we're living in such a dynamic world right now where 6 months back we had historic unemployment and now we're almost we're getting back so fast up mm-hmm. that cycle typically in the previous depressions took years yeah. we're moving between months uh, i just want the ability for individuals to be in a lot more of their own, of control of their own destiny their own careers and where they think about income generation as a portfolio as a continuum between i want i could want if i want to be a full time employee but i want to keep moonlighting on the side both either for income generation or I don't think my full-time job is going anywhere. I need to learn something else so I'm going to I'm going to compete, I'm going to take on small jobs for freelancing on the side. I think that makes a more sustainable economy when individuals that can vote people into power that can do make all the choices with their wallet also have the choice about the type of work, the type of relationship that they want with a company. I do think that the large companies will continue to play a significant role in the future but I want that shift from companies having incredible control to labor unions having you know brought that control to or at least the balance of power to a little bit more of a stasis to now individuals having the choice to pick and choose what they want to do and how they want to live and not be at the you know getting fired if something bad happens and they have nowhere else to go yeah. i think that's the shift that i want to see in 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 the marketplace and that's what excites me the most about participating in this and also trying to solve the problem of the demand side how do companies get ready for that world that's where my world is i'm not on the supply side the themes you hit on are extremely consistent with the facts that we've studied over the 10 years of state of independence and i'll just point to a few of them and i know you're familiar with the study but even with the challenges of independence we find that a high number of those that enter the field are happy satisfied and want to continue despite the challenges which is actually really eye popping when you think about people would assume that oh people prefer traditional jobs don't they they're only oh, it's, it's actually not true the data does not show it the data shows that once you try this work style you're somewhat addicted and you want to stay because it provides what you called agency and what we see is that self actualization of i'm doing the work i love the way i want mm-hmm. you know which is mu's motto and i think that is very very spot on with what we're seeing in the sector We're also seeing that this workforce is a significant size, right? We're already talking about 41 million individuals in the United States of work, you know, working age individuals. So it's not just population, it's a working population that contribute within the independent economy and that's a very significant number and it's a significant number as you pointed out when you think about policymakers and you think about what constructs they're creating for our collective future and their own biases or maybe their own fears about how work should be designed so i think when you put yourself out there such as you have to speak at the, what can be seen as the fringes 
you help to educate people that need to hear that message so that they can turn around and design a better product. You know, it's a better workforce product or social product for how people want to live. They want to live in a slightly more location agnostic way, perhaps. They want to live in a way that they can choose the type of work they do and be choiceful about their portfolio of employment. So um, side hustles are a big trend within the ind independent um, workforce, and we see that trend growing. So everything you mentioned, I think, will resonate with our audience, and it resonates with me. I want to touch on that concept you said, which is the challenge is on the demand side, because you brought it up, and it's, it's sort of a, a very insightful comment. I think I understand what it means, but I'm, I would love for you to share more specifically for our audience what you see that challenge as and maybe breaking it down. It is so fresh in my mind because me and two of my colleagues were protagonists in a Harvard Business School classroom today wow. talking about this exact problem as to how do you make companies change? How do you build businesses around something like this and take the company from a heavy full-time employment focus to strategic use of, of freelancers. And, and I am not a talent person. I am PNL leader. So I think about external talent as a profit pool. So it's a strategic use of it. And as such, I've created a business that is doing well. But then the question is, how did we survive? Whereas most, many initiatives like this have not in the past. You know, we spend 90 minutes with 100 people in Harvard's um, advanced management program, which is mostly CXOs. Uh, just debating the same question of what did we do uh, to support this and what is there to learn from for other people. And I think there's a few things to do that. I think the first thing that I would always tell people is, is to be very careful about the words that you use. That too, when you're trying to drive change within large companies, waving the flag of disruption and innovation creates a us versus them mm -hmm. approach, where in effect, Till your business starts making money, your innovation, your cool baby starts making money, your salary is being paid by those people that you think are uncool, that are doing the mundane, traditional jobs that nobody cares about, like they are paying your bills. So this, there has to be a fundamental respect of the traditional and incumbent, these, these pejoratives that we've created to talk about businesses that are making money, that are putting food on table for billions of people, but we want to exemplify and put the blockchains and on the on a pedestal, an open talent and crowdsourcing on a pedestal, and you've immediately created a rift. Don't do that to start with. I think you'd start with saying, talk about true value. Is there a cost reduction potential? Talk about that. Is there agility potential? Talk about that. But don't talk about this is going to disrupt your business. Your business will not exist as it exists in the next five years and change because um, we, you will be irrelevant in the future. It works for some people, but it does not work for 90% of the people. Because like Deloitte, most companies are actually doing all right. So you have to start there with that journey. And then the second thing that you have to do is top down and bottom up. Bottom-up is a lot more important to me because that's where I play more, mm -hmm. is to create an absolutely seamless, easy experience to support the change that you're having people make. Okay. You have to make the whole process so friction-free that they feel like this is actually easier to use for me to change than the traditional process. Uber is a much maligned example for many other reasons, but people got into strangers' cars because they made the process of getting to the stranger's car 
super easy. Excellent, excellent um, analogy. And, you know, having sat in rooms where disruption is the point of conversation and having kind of been part of startup conversations where that was an opportunity for how you pitch, I think you've said something very wise. And, you know, the way I would play it back is that when you start to think about a topic as naughty as global workforce transformation, because that's really what's underlying what you're saying, right? You can't start with an adversarial position. You're talking about the employment of the world, right? You're talking about shifting something very, very big and very significant. And so by leading with some empathy, which I think I hear in your in your approach, and I really appreciate, I think it's really important, empathy for those that are contributors, but also the data, like, does this work? How does it work? Here's how to make it easy. Here's how to operationalize it. So you're helping that business leader that is really challenged. You know, they're sitting and looking at a PL and saying, how do I make this work? I have to have this sort of margin. I have to be at this level of growth. I have to have these certain skills. And my traditional model is broken, but I have no idea how to fix it. If you can present an alternative chain of work to work outcomes that supports that business leader's goals, I can see the business case. You know, as an entrepreneur myself, that's a very logical story. And I do believe that the great opportunity in this sector, and, you know, MBO believes this, and I know our team, you know, puts so much weight behind this, is to educate the large firm on how to be comfortable with workforce transformation, how to really get beyond the fear and confusion or these buzzwords of disruption to really design, right? And then to really execute. So so great, great points. Um, I really think that they will resonate with the people that are listeners of this channel because they're, you know, they're all involved in that craft and they're all trying to figure this out in real time. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. And I think there are um, most large companies, open talent right now sits in this strange chasm of uh, of like this orphan that nobody owns, which is the sourcing and procurement on it, does talent on it, does the business on it, does the business outcomes. And I think one of the biggest challenges for open talent and freelancing to really scale is to either figure out one owner that then is truly incented to drive scale because sourcing and procurement typically thinks about sourcing of contractors as a cost management effort. Mm-hmm. Talent thinks about it mostly as noise, that recourse of last resort that, you know, when I don't find anybody else, I'll go to freelancing. Business thinks about it as, you know, I just need somebody really fast. If I go through HR, they'll throw compliance at me and I'll, it'll take me four weeks. So I'm going to just go find somebody on a marketplace, pay them on credit card. All of them lead to non-scaled, unscaled, non-compliant use. So I think it's contingent on companies to make it easy for freelancing. And right now it is not in most cases. So when you speak about 41 million people participating in it, uh, that doesn't bear fruit to all of the um, aggregators that are participating, like MBOs and Upworks. And they are in hundreds of millions of dollars. If 41 million people are participating, they should be in hundreds of billions of dollars. We agree. So there's a disconnect there. <laughs> we agree. There's a disconnect there. <laughs> and that is a, a wonderful, I think, uh, insight into what it takes to unlock a work opportunity like this at scale. And I know for us, the magic is in the combination of being champions for the talent, which is a unique position that we take within the industry, being a trusted ear 
to the large organizations that are successfully doing this already and, and have the business case and the examples, and then focusing on the creation of the product and platform that really helps to do sort of the Uberization piece that you spoke to, which is the making it easier and knitting together the technical solutions, the players, the, the point problems, and making them accessible to this 41 million and then America's employers, uh, that's a great challenge. I mean, I know we're up for it and I, I suspect you are too. Absolutely. And MBO is one of our core partners in this process and they've been doing a great job with it. So, you know, as we scale, you know, we all grow together. I think that's, that's the, the right approach. I think this is going to be a continued conversation that we have. It's probably one of many. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Balaji Bondili, head of Deloitte Pixel. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.